What's our intro gonna be? We should start by telling everyone that there's 17. It's 17, right? It isn't 19, I keep forgetting. Hey everyone, welcome to the Coen Brothers Brothers. We're, we're gonna take a sophisticated look at either 17 or 19 Coen Brothers you films. Suck. I'm Michael Swain, with me as always is my co-host. Abe Epperson. That's true. You douchebag. <laughs> you are- that is his full title, Abe Epperson, you douchebag. Ah, so please address me. that one. <laughs> but we're, uh, yeah, we're going to try and take a sophisticated deep dive at all of these films. Yeah. And we're starting with the first one, which is Blood Simple. Chronological, baby. Chronological. And we will be tackling it, as always, from three spectra. Diegesis, pedagogy, and howdy do that. <laughs> How do you do that? How do you do that? How do how do you do that? How they do that? I yeah. don't know. How yeah, I know. We all do how that. How they do the, that? How do we do that? How do we do that together? Yeah. Um, so we're gonna start with diegesis, which is discussing the film itself as if it were a standard review, how it's executed, the craft of it, what happens in the movie. Uh, so let's see, Abe. Do you you seem like the type who would have the year? Do you know the year this came out? Uh, I do. Nineteen eighty four. Well done. Orson Welles' most chilling vision brought to life. Uh, Because it was it filmed in 1983. That's okay, and it sort of started when, uh, or what I read was Sam Raimi. They had the script. They had been editors, industry editors for a long time. Joel Uh, and Ethan. Joel was uh, assistant editor for Sam Raimi's films, right, including The Evil Dead. Yes, and this came out the same year Evil Dead actually came out, Uh, and. Sam Raimi, who had had success doing what we now call like calling dentists, <laughs> which is getting private investors That's by cold right. calling over a long period of time, something Abe and I have never had the balls to do. Yeah, we're scaled. Um, just people who are rich and saying like, do you want to make a movie? Yeah. And well, it's they, a different time now because that, that before was like this magical thing. Now it's like, we all know that it's a terrible investment. Uh, That's public knowledge. The secret is out. Yeah, the secret's out. In but the, yeah, if like return on investment of like a sh- like films, right. not to say that you shouldn't Patreon us and oh us yeah five dollars each. Well, this month. is a bonus series, so they probably already are if they're listening. Oh, yeah, to this. Huh. Thank you. Hey everybody, our uh, small beans. Hey beanies, and uh, they basically they were able to raise seven hundred and fifty grand just by doing cold calls over the course of a year, which was half of the budget. And that was half of the budget, and they were able to make this movie and. Just to get you excited, because I know a lot of people haven't seen this one, even Coen Brothers fans, uh, because, of course, it's not the jewel in their crown because they're just getting started. They're just getting ramped up. But I do think it's very, very strong. It shows all the promise of what they're going to become. And it's strictly an independent film made for a very low budget outside of the Hollywood system. And a lot of reviewers now, in retrospect, consider it the greatest independent film ever made. So it's still Great. <laughs> and what I love is that, so on the advice of Sam Raimi, the way in which they pitch people is they made like a mock trailer mm-hmm. and they brought a, proje- a projector. Mock trial with Jay Reinhold? Mock trial. <laughs> mock trial. Uh, they brought a projector to people's houses and showed their trailer. Um, and it was just like, it's that shot of uh, the car stopping in the middle of the road and then, uh, like, has voiceover, another man that he was going to kill, shot. Uh, and then it's a shot of, like, the backlit 
gun holes on a wall. Like, it's just pieces of murder. Oh, it really is just a trailer. It's not a yeah. scene like the Sin City That's thing. how they got their okay. people to invest in it, is that, like, the painterly aspect that it was, they were like, oh, that will be a good film. I want to see what happens. Right. And here's some money, so I get to see what happens. Not like they're pitching the story and literally telling people who are their angel investors, so this is the movie, this is how it ends. No, they were just like, check out this trailer. Yeah. Don't you want to know how we it ends? Couldn't get that done today. No, and make it's money. a slightly but different situation. Different time, different time. But we're glad it got made because it is really. Uh, it was very well selected, I think, because what it boils down to for people who are wildly unfamiliar with it, it's something that the Coens are going to come back to time and again, which is noir with their with a twist on it. Crime, crime, and the noir style with some elements that they brought to the table as well. Also, I believe one of the only Coen brother films that does not actually have police in it. Right, yes, whereas the police almost always become involved. That's a budget thing. Is it? I think. Well, you could have a police presence, but... That's that's the true intelligence of this film, I think. There's only like four characters. There's four it's characters. A play. Yeah. It's a play. Well, there's five if you count Maurice. But they is o- there's only one sequence where it makes it feel like, this is like a normal movie. This is a regular movie, you know, like, uh, which is the first bar scene. Because they had to they have with a shit ton of extras. Yeah. There's like 30, 40 people in that uh, bar. So it makes it feel right off the bat in our first like 25 minutes. We're like, oh, this is like a normal movie. It looks like a normal movie. There's a bunch of people there. There's obviously lighting and all these things that you don't think about. You just feel when you look at the frame. But then the rest of the movie, there's no people. It's just the four. It's a. It's a drama play. Right. It's interesting because the Coens, the reason they're the greatest filmmakers of all time is the thoroughness of attention to detail at every level and the correct prioritization of goals, I think. And it's interesting to see that applied with complete limitations. This is their first movie. They know if it fails, it'll be really hard to relaunch from square one. It's so calculated to be as big as it can be without breaking the bank. Uh-huh. And it's literally called Blood Simple because it is as like, it's as basic a story as they could tell because they're just trying to show you what they can do. Mm-hmm. So the general plot is as basic. In fact, there's a song I wanted to mention. What Stan Ridgway, one of my favorite guys, has a song called Peg and Pete and Me uh, that is the same plot as this. And it's a three-minute song. And I mean, just coincidence. It's just, just hire a private eye to murder. It's just such a fucking simple. Yeah. Well, it's the plot that the sheriff's trying to imply happened, and then it diverges. You mean the private investigator, right? In the song, Peg and well, whose name is actually Lauren Vesser. What well, I didn't know because it's not actually ever said. It, yeah. It's only on his lighter, I think. It's on lighter. It says Lauren, but May- it's played by M. Emmett Welsh. Yes. Right? And it says, uh, let's not get too diverged. I just want to say, so the plot is just that there's a love triangle. There's an old mean guy and his young pretty wife. And he's rich and she's cheating on him with a young nice guy who works for him. And he pays someone to try and have them killed. And then stuff spirals out of control. Right. And that's it. It's as basic as like a soap opera plot, but it's just so well executed that at every scene... The layering is what got me. I'm like, man, it moves so slow. It's like a big, unwieldy machine where you're like, there's only like four elements. How is it getting so detailed? Mm -hmm. It's simple and detailed at the same time, and it's pretty beautiful. And I do want to say Blood Simple, because this confused me. I had to look it up, is an allusion to 
uh, a Dashiell Hammett novel where he uses blood simple to mean the way people make stupid decisions or their intelligence is completely reduced after they've just done something extremely violent or witnessed oh, something so like extremely violent. Oh, so like bloodlust. Yeah. And the only reference to it in the movie is M. Emmett Walsh, the private investigator, Lauren Visor, says, uh, don't go simple <laughs> on me to Marty. Oh, yeah, that's right. And But that's the only clue, but that is what it means. So that's a key to the theme of the plot, which is just... Not diegesis, by the way. That's true. That's pedagogy for sure. Yeah. Okay, okay. So let's bounce back to what's going on. <laughs> so yeah, I know his name's Lauren Visur because I looked it up. It does say Lauren on his lighter, which is a key prop. And what I love about that is on the lighter, it says Lauren, Elk's Man of the Year. Yeah. And the opening narration of this movie is he says, uh, the world's full of complainers, but the fact is there's no guarantees. I don't care if you're president or man of the year. And it's like, like man of the year. And he is man of the year. And he says things can still go wrong. Right. So uh, it's an, there's masterful foreshadowing all throughout. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, should we just go through the plot? It's pretty quick. Yeah, you got, let's, let's lay out the little drama here. You got Ray played by, what's his name? He didn't Shit. recur later in the Coen verse. Uh, John Getz. John Getz, Abby, which is the... Francis McDormand's first role. Very first role. Film major feature debut for Francis McDormand. Marty. Marty. Julian Marty, who goes by Marty, which I think is a, just a nice character thing that like he doesn't want to go by Julian because it's so feminine, so he goes by his last name. Right, right, right. Because uh, he's to super To show the insecurity. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. That's Dan Hedaya, who does a great job. As always. And we got Maurice and we got the sheriff, Lauren Vasseur. The private detective, not the sheriff. I'm sorry. I keep calling him the sheriff, but he's not a sheriff at all. He no, just wears a cowboy he, hat and has a gun. Yeah. But he's on the wrong side of the law. He's on, he's on like he's a bounty hunter. Yeah. Yeah. And totally amoral. In fact, I think he has a lot in common with a similarly named Cohen character, Anton Chigurh, yeah. Lauren Vasseur. Right. It's just weird. Yeah. I mean, he. I'd say that that one's lawful evil and one's more like chaotic neutral mm-hmm. but yeah they they occupy the same role right uh mm-hmm. in the story lauren being uh chaotic neutral chaotic neutral right yeah. because his main trait is he's gonna fuck all these people over for the maximum profit from the beginning yeah. that's all he ever intended to and, do and yeah and he doesn't care about the systems of law or whatever it's all about him yeah, so Ray and Abby are this young couple. Ray works for Dan Hedaya, Marty, at his bar in Texas. Ray and Abby fall in love. They bone. Uh, Julian, Marty, sorry. Marty, he would hate that I call him Julian all the time. But he's dead. <laughs> Fuck him. Yeah, also um, fictional. Yeah. Marty sends the private detective <laughs> to take pictures of them boning, which is confirmed. Uh, he goes to confront them. Long story short, he actually breaks into her house and like, puts his hand over her mouth and drags her into the street. She fucking breaks his finger, kicks him in the mm. balls. He runs away. This inflames him so much that he decides he needs to have them killed. He intentionally wrongly accuses his other bartender, Maurice, of having stolen $10,000 from the safe so that he can give $10,000 to this private detective to kill this couple. Uh, the private detective from the beginning plans to kill Dan Hedaya instead and just pretend he killed the couple. So he does poorly doctored photos 
Like, I'm surprised that it worked. Right. But he, like, doctors photos to make it look like he shot them to death in bed, but he didn't. He just No Photoshop photos. in 85, in 83. Right, yeah. right, right. And then when Marty opens the safe to give him his 10 grand, he shoots Marty and takes all the money. Mm-hmm. Unbeknownst to him, because he's been rendered blood simple by doing a murder, I think, <clears throat> he leaves his monogram lighter on the desk. The important point then is that Ray comes to talk to Marty, and all throughout, Ray is actually very forthright. Like, he knows Marty knows that his wife's cheating with him, mm-hmm. and he just goes and says, look, Marty, I'm sorry, you know, it's, it's true. I want my last two weeks of pay, and then I'll quit and leave. And he's like, no, you're not getting your pay, and if you come back, I'll shoot you. And during that interchange, Marty plants it in his head that he's like, you know, she's just a whore, and she'll do this to you. And what's really going to be fucking funny is when she looks at you and says, what? I don't know, Ray. I didn't do nothing funny. Right. That's fucking funny. Which is crazy because it's such a snap judgment mm-hmm. uh, on his part. And I want to point out that our two protagonists, Abby and Ray, like, uh, they never actually see. There's never, like, they're next to each other eventually by the end of the film, which will come back later. But, like, still at this point, they have not actually seen the detective they only see the detective in the opening shot and when he, she feels that like they're being followed and they slam on the brakes and a bug passes <clears> them and they see a silhouette and he's observed them from yeah, afar but times. they haven't met he's just witnessing actions which right. is like not a complex tale it's basically i saw you boning a guy and this guy is also you know you're supposed to be in union with this other guy. So, so you're mad. a liar. So he's going to kill so this guy. So it, it kind of tells you exactly what's going on in the detective's mind. Like he feels like he can make a snap judgment at any time on who, who anyone is at any time. Like I know exactly uh, who that person is. Cause I've seen that. He's side very of confident. Law. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it is a key point. I should go back and say that when he kills Dan Hadaya, he does it intentionally with a pearl handle pistol Oof, that he yeah. stole from Francis McDormand's purse. Yeah. To because obviously what I love about another thing about Cohen's is they leave the right things unsaid. You can figure out what the private detective intended to do, right? Even though it doesn't work out, and he never tells anyone what his plan was. Right. You can put it together that his plan was to make it look like Yo Jimbo that shit, right? Right. He wants to set up a crime scene whereby it looks like Francis McDormand killed Dan Hadaya because she wants to run away with Ray. Then when shit spirals out of control further, and he feels he has to kill Ray. This is a thing I only caught this time because I did internet research. Mm. He crushes Ray's skull with a walrus-shaped piggy bank, and I didn't notice this, but the only other time you see that in is... In her apartment? It's in Abby's apartment, so yep. it's her thing. So Literally breaking the bank. So he, again, was just doubling down on his plan, which is to make it look like Abby <laughs> did it. So I guess right. now he's going to try and make it look like she had a spat with he Ray and He obviously stole it, yeah, 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 in order to manifest this kind of narrative that... The, once again, the police would buy. Right. Because he had been on that side because, you know, ex-cop kind of idea. Once they see all the, they, they have their checklist, once they see all of it, they'll just stop looking into the investigation because he right. knows that he's been on that side and he said, oh, okay, so uh, someone got jealous and someone killed someone. All right, all exactly. lines up. And because they never actually see the private detective, Basically, the plot functions the same as like a sitcom farce because right. I'm also watching Frasier right now, and it reminds <laughs> me of every episode of Frasier is just the same comedy thing. of errors kind of With, thing. It's just the same thing. Separate the characters into separate rooms. Tell Make one them group think something. 
Niles is uh, scared because, or sad because his, it's his aunt's funeral. Mm-hmm. Tell the other group through a misunderstanding. Niles is excited because his wedding's coming up. Put them back in the main room and have them say lines that go either way. Like, aren't you excited for all the flowers? Oh, I guess so. And tunic. And that's actually what this movie is. Yeah. Because you can slowly piece together. Abby thinks Ray killed Dan Hedaya and Ray right. thinks Abby, Abby killed, killed Dan, Dan Hedaya yeah. and that undermines their relationship completely yet they never uh, actually tell each other what they think or compare notes right. it's never said aloud that they don't understand what's going on and that I think is the triumph of the Coens showing look we're not going to be ambitious with many many things to prove but one of the things we'll prove is no dialogue clear actions you know what's happening every step of the way. Like subtext is blaring at you through the screen. Right. You know we're good directors. What this I also what love bring. is that I actually, because it's been such a long time since I rewatched this film, I thought I had invented the idea in my head that the idea of like uh, off to the side at night murder was mm-hmm. Fargo. And I was like, but wasn't that in Blood Simple? No, they wouldn't do it twice. And they totally just did it twice. They did. The only also, difference is yeah. in Fargo, it's a little bit more elaborate i'd say like you you're a little bit more with the with the struggle of someone dying as opposed to just witnessing an event uh from afar but it was just crazy that that like that's their like sixth movie i want to say within the first six movies uh within almost 10 years of each other they're just like let's just do that scene again More or less, and it's we'll get to Miller's Crossing soon. Right. It's not dissimilar to the famous Totoro scene in terms of the tone and the emotions. But oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Let's talk about that scene because it's probably the most famous sequence from the movie. It's 13 minutes with no dialogue. Oh, so good. And essentially, what it comes down to is, as we said, Lauren Visser, the private detective, and I. There's a lot of echoes of their future stuff, dude. Like, the he's a private detective casing the place in a bug. That happens in Lebowski. That's true. And his, That's true. I, and there's the Lauren Visser Anton Sugar connection. I don't know why I, I didn't think. catch that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they don't mind borrowing from themselves for sure. Cast right. alone. But so yeah, what happens is after Lauren shoots Dan Hedaya, Julian Marty, uh, what's his name? Ray comes to try and steal his last two weeks' pay from right. the cash register, but it's empty because everything's been moved into the safe already. He goes in to check on the safe to see if it might be open. He sees Dan Hedai is dead. He sees uh, Francis McDormand's pistol on the floor. You know he immediately assumes she did it to try and get them away from Marty because Marty is a dangerous guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he basically decides that to protect this woman he's in love with, he has to dispose of the body without asking anyone or telling her. He just decides that. So he scrubs the blood up, takes Marty in the car. I think the that's the blood seat. simple thing that we're coming back to is that he's, he's like a rat in a cage. He's essentially just thinking, I don't know. Like, what is it? Because they don't know that side of the law. They're like, what is it that would incriminate me? It's a really awesome sequence craft wise, because the Motown song, same old song, we'll talk about, I'm sure repeatedly, is used as right. like a linchpin in this movie. Yeah. It's the same old song, which of course is a resonant lyric because this 
is a story you've heard a thousand as times before, it, yeah, but they're going to tell it better. Like they're going to refresh it by how good they are because it's, they're, they're trying to show off. <laughs> just like, welcome to the scene. Exactly. Brothers. But, uh, yeah, it would be like making a movie called back to basics, motherfuckers. And, um, the potatoes movie. Um, but Maurice, the bartender constantly brings women back to the bar at closing time to dance and make out and probably fuck on the bar. We don't know. Mm. Um, but be- he is there that night. Well, Ray is scrubbing blood. We hear yeah. same old song blasting only through the wall. So it's just such a great, he's in like this dark it's, red room scrubbing blood and there's right. this echoey blaring Motown that sounds creepy as opposed to the first <coughs> time we were in the bar, the Motown song coming on brought the whole bar to life and made everything feel happy and alive. Now we hate this song. It's like, you got to get out of here, man. <laughs> I, I want to take a moment to talk about the lighting of that scene in particular, because as a visual motif, obviously blood, red, not that hard to, you know, like connect it. Land so on. Yeah. Not, uh Barry Sonnenfeld, who uh, later who did Raising Arizona and Miller's Crossing as well, and then kind of went off and did his own thing, and he became a director. He's director of like Adam's Family and stuff like that. Very good cinematographer. No Roger Deakins, who we'll learn later in these podcasts, is like the all star. Just won the Oscar. I heard. Finally, uh, for, for Blade Runner 2049, Blade Runner, yeah. which is a classic. But he like uh, shot all of them. But Barry Sonnenfeld it's a classic is, of a woman no, situation. is no scrub, dude. This guy knows oh, yeah. what he's doing. Behind uh, the camera, yeah. Uh, the He used a lot of headlights and like red lamps in the bar and through street windows. And it's just anytime there's red, I think it's that they're immersed in this bloodlust. So anytime we're going to quote someone being blood simple they're usually identified by having like the main key light, meaning for people who don't know lighting, like your main light, the light that lights most of the face Mm -hmm. is a good example. Or like most of the wall, most of the scene uh, is, is usually a red and it's always the same like crimson or I guess like scarlet red. It's a dark room red. And what they get out of that, which is amazing. I want to call out two points that I thought were the best of that. And I agree. That's exactly how it's used, obviously, intentionally. Uh, when Dan Hedaya is getting the money from the safe, it's uh, M. Emmett Walsh, the private detective, is not on camera. But right. you know he's about to shoot him in the back. Right. And they cut to this intense shot of Hedaya's face with red washed over it. Mm-hmm. And that is M. Emmett Walsh. May, that moment is him deciding that nah, I'm yep. going to shoot him right now. He just, yeah, it's like his rage off lust. camera is coloring the frame. Yeah. Right. And then the second one is literally Lauren Visser again in an actual dark room when he's uh, developing photos. He goes for smoke, and that's the moment he realizes yep. I left a lighter with my name on it at the goddamn crime scene. Right. Which, of course, is going to flood you with that adrenaline. In other words, panic. the rent. And they get diegetic red light because he's in a dark room. It's right. Great. Uh, the remnants of my failure, the 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 result, or like the the uh, what will incriminate me, in other words, is left in that room, which is full of red. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason it got left there is because he told Marty as an alibi, "Well, I'm killing the couple. Go away for a couple days and go fishing." Marty comes back with three dead fish, which I think obviously foreshadows there will be three deaths in this movie. Uh, or it's a red herring. Because <laughs> <laughs> the red light on it. Yeah. I think they were trout. Yeah. Um, and 
This another great just like scene work moment is he looks at the photos and sees that they're dead, and he says to the sh- uh, not the sheriff, he says to the private eye, "Do you want some of these fish?" And he pushes them yep. back, and he goes. They appear to be dead, yes, and he pushes the fish back, which is like, you know later that he's lying, so he's both saying, hey, I'm not lying, I'm saying, yeah, they certainly look dead, and... I reject the dead bodies. In like I get them away from me. Yeah, because I don't, I don't, I'm distancing. I don't want the that. result of the murder. I just want it to occur, kind of thing. But in that exact action, he pushes the fish back, and he happens to push the fish on top of his lighter. Right. So by by refusing Covers. the result of his yep. sin, he brings it upon himself inescapably. Right. Because that's the action that. So so you are you reap what you sow exactly, uh, and also like you're you're blind. Uh, if you if you choose not to see and if you've made your mind up about someone or something, you will not necessarily see the result of what you're doing. Exactly. Because you're blinded to the reality of the situation. In other words, we're all just a bunch of people walking and talking in, in Making rooms. Making assumptions in our tunnel. Yeah, yeah, and if you think that it's any specific thing, if you're like, no, that those types of people are horrible, right? then you're you're missing the point. You're not seeing you are full of bloodlust. You are right. full of, you're simple. doesn't matter if you're Pope or man of the air. Man of the air. Things can go wrong. <laughs> Tell your neighbors about your problems and watch them fly. Now in Russia, they got it all worked out. So yeah, everyone that's pulls what I for each to other. Like, what, what, that's the theory anyway. Well, yeah. What, what, is, <laughs> what do you think the meaning of the Russian line is? I think that's for pedagogy, sir. We're still in diegesis. Let's get there fast. All that's right. my favorite part of Coen Brothers movies. Well, we have no time limit on this. Yeah. Um, this is a labor of love. So, yes, all of that shit is awesome. I think it's definitely, if you've seen A Simple Plan, it's the same themes. It's the unknowing ripples of your actions. It's a crime spiraling out Which of Which is Raimi seeing, oh, shit, they made Fargo really good. Yeah, that's I want to make a simple... Yeah. yeah. That's true. Oh, yeah, I forgot, simple, Fargo. I forgot Simple Plan as Raimi. Simple Plan is very good, though. Yeah. Um, so, anyway... We wanted to talk about this linchpin sequence at the midpoint that everyone loves to talk about. 13 minutes, no dialogue other than the radio. Mm. Ray's driving down a midnight highway with Marty's dead body in the back seat, and suddenly Marty takes a breath. <laughs> so he wasn't dead. Oh, uh, it's so haunting. And yet it's simple. I like that they're also saying we're it's not like going to ghost story. We're not going to give you any Lego bricks that you haven't seen in other movies. It's going to be very comfortable. Guy you thought was dead wakes up. These are basic things, but mm. we're going to do it good, so you know we're good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, what I love is also the way they capture the noir feel is they specifically chose locations that almost look black and white even though they aren't. That's It's usually under the cover of darkness, so yes. that's what gives you that contrast. With headlights or yeah. a single bright source. Uh, like the bar, if you notice, except for the red lights, in the same way of the tail lights amongst the darkness in, on the road, um, all the lights are off. Yeah. But this red light is on. It's like... So you and who who orients a bar like that? Who has like, well, here's my lights for to clean up. I'll turn that off and I'll keep on this just the red right. light that we usually use for bars because you right. want to get the intimate only light. and yeah. like there's like a hidden kind of desire uh, of everyone who goes to bars and you know fucking fucking uh, or just boozing or in this there's case just alcoholics in this case in uh the haunting realization of like like I called it a ghost story it's very much that the, his 
his fi- like blood drains from his face as soon as he hears that breath. Oh, it's know? great. And they've done a great job establishing through action, not dialogue. Pay attention, every other filmmaker. Yeah. That Ray is a good guy with a strong conscience who's wrapped up in some heavy shit. Not because anyone says, you know, Ray, you're such a good guy. But because... Dan Hadaya told the private detective, incinerate their bodies. Then we see him with the same choice. He has a dead body of someone he hates and he doesn't want to get caught. And he considers incinerating him, can't do it, and instead just burns the bloody clothes and takes him to give him a proper burial. So literally in this case, the fact that the guy has a conscience is going to fuck him. Which which I love because, um, I don't know, this may be stretching, but I think... There's something about this film about I love I love just the concept of burning the clothes because it's like it's the fabric they put on the problem like clothing is what hides our shame mm-hmm. <laughs> so to speak and in the same way with the fish it's the newspaper that covers the lighter it's it's not the fish right it's what they're adorned in it's the thing that we use to hold the fish so we don't get our hands all fishy and so he's trying to cover up by not burning the bodies, because that would be like he wouldn't he he feels that's going too far. But he'll burn the clothes because they're indicative of the, the crime, event, right? But at the same time, not truly covering up your tracks correctly. Whereas Julian slash Marty, of course, is totally willing to be like, "Yeah, burn the bodies." Yeah, I don't feel guilt about this I am decision, and simple. I want it gone yeah. from me. Yeah. So because Ray's a good guy, he lets Marty live, and Marty goes. Ah. And it's great because it's one of the most realistic reactions I've ever seen that you don't uh, up until six feet under where the mom finds out the dad's dead and the pilot fucking that reaction gets me every time. Mm. But no other movie ever does this. And it's so realistic and relatable. He goes "Ah," and it smash cuts to Ray sprinting away from the car into the dark and then having to stop and like touch his head and pull himself together and be like, I can't just run into the woods. Yeah. I have to do something. I realize like my impulse is to get like, kind of like, um, it's like just a, you know what? Well, that's the thing that uh, I I love about this is it's like the, um, the stories they tell about like uh, when a Fox gets caught in a trap, they will gnaw off their leg. Right. Right. It's the same kind of, he wants to get away at just like the Fox who's trying just to run and run and run. And then they sit there and they realize they're caught. And then they have that slow, horrible realization that I'm going to just have to bite my leg off. And that's what him sitting there with his, you know, breath, you know, like backlit. So you can see, how he's thinking. How he's breathing hard and thinking hard. Yeah, exactly. And uh, incidentally, this scene takes place right beneath three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. No, that's true. <laughs> like, only in the sense that any location that's not Ebbing, Missouri is outside it. So I assume this is outside Ebbing, Missouri. I somewhere. actually haven't seen it yet, but I'm going to at some point. Well, it's a Francis, but it's not a Cohen. So I know. different podcast. I know. I know. Um, anyway, we could cover it on frame right though. So he finally pulls himself together. Such a good scene. Walks back to the car and the back seat's empty. (laughs) Which is just like comedic, like that's just Looney Tunes version. And they're so good at every possible way to raise tension. And they'll they'll hit this hard again when No Country rolls around. In fact, the scene where the private eye is sneaking through the house and the light comes on under the doorway. Very reminiscent of the hotel scene from No Country. Were were you, I was just going to mention, if you were Anton Sugar, you you would have, 
not had any of these problems because like a psychopath, you would have just ended it there and right. done your job well. But because you second guessed yourself, because you're a good guy and you're doing, you're a fish out of water, right? you're not good at your job of murdering someone <laughs> because you have a morality. you'd never murdered someone So in before. other words, yeah. murder is for, you know... People who are ready to murder. <laughs> yeah. And anyone else, don't murder. Yeah. So to raise... The stakes even more. We already know that in order to dispose of the gun, he was going to bury it with a dead body. So he put Francis McDormand's gun in Marty's coat pocket. By the way, I... Which Marty doesn't know because he just regained consciousness, but he has a gun and we know that. So brilliant. (laughs) To double down, like to establish Ray even further, I think, as a conscionable man, he takes a shovel out of his car and raises it. And you're like, oh, so he's going to go for the old head smash and he can't do that either. No. So you're like, this guy's challenge is that he's a good guy, but he has to murder this guy right now. Or he will not survive. And <laughs> right. Know, yeah, yeah. So a truck is coming, of course, to make tension even higher. He has to bundle the sick, like, vomiting blood Julian into the car again for a second. Mm-hmm. And then he finally decides what to do. Again, no one has spoken. He just decides to go into this big barren field and dig a grave. He drops Marty in the grave. He slowly starts to bury him. He looks dead. He looks dead. Marty is like fumbling around, just going moaning and shit plaintively. His hand finds the gun. He draws the gun. (laughs) He raises the gun, which we know is mostly empty, but Ray does not. Again, like the whole movie is the audience knows. The audience is way ahead of all the characters, which is so great feeling. Because it's that dramatic irony bit. It's the idea that, you know, like... Nothing to us is off screen, but to them, it's all off screen. And therefore, they all think they're making reasonable decisions, but every decision is based on faulty information in every case. (laughs) (laughs) Blammo. Nope. (laughs) Yep. So he pulls the trigger three times and it clicks empty three times. And Ray like shakingly reaches out, takes the gun and very quickly finishes burying him alive. And it's really horrible. Yeah. Obviously. Like, uh, and I, I, oh just the idea of someone who's like, I'm dying. I'm, this is going to be the most horrible thing. I don't want to do it. Oh my God, I have an out. And to be the denied the out yeah. is it's like insult to injury. It's You're like, like, why did God put a loaded exactly. gun in my pocket? If it's, it's going to be empty. Yeah. yeah. Like what does anything mean? And <laughs> right. it's in, it's as we see over the course of the career, I used to think that they got increasingly nihilistic, but I think they have always been kind of nihilistic in the way in which they treat like Providence. I think they are nihilistic and yet in the beginning of their career had a strong feeling. You know, they call Raising Arizona a sellout movie, which we'll get to in more detail. And they don't mean that it's bad. We'll discuss that next episode. But by that, I think they mean they know that they're making, they're playing in a universe of film that has morality rules that they don't believe are actually true, yeah. but they're willing to do that because they're the kind of movies people like. Yeah. Um, and then now that they, when they get to the phase in their career where they're like, no, we can do whatever the fuck they want. You they'll even, no country. Or, they'll even take yeah. something uplifting in fairly uplifting, like true grit and be like, and suck all the meaning out of it to show how nihilist it is. Right. Cause that's, I think, I think what they really believe, but that's for later. That's for later. That's, Recurring yeah. Themes. Yeah. And I mean, Hudsucker, which is early in their career is also probably a sellout movie to them in the same regard where it plays by the rules of if you're good, this neoclassical kind of justice, this idea Mm -hmm. that if 
you try hard and you do good, you will get paid dividends. Right. Which I don't think they believe in the movies that they make that are clearly a raw reflection of the world as they Definitely see not it. this movie. Right, right, right. So uh, our everyone's favorite sequence has come to an end now. Yeah. Ray calls Abby and says, it's okay, I took care of everything. I did it. We're in the clear. This, of course, makes her think, oh, you killed Marty? Like, I didn't ask you to do that. And he comes back to her place. They decide it's too dangerous where they are. And they have to move. Oh, he doesn't want to sleep in bed with her anymore. It's obviously tense, right? Their relationship's being undermined by everything that's going on. They move to a different apartment that ha- happens to have a giant bay window on one side. That will be important later. Okay, let's talk about the gun. Okay. Because the thing you were going to say about the gun is different than what I'm going to say. So say your thing, and then I'll say my thing. Because the, the story of the gun is fucking phenomenal. <laughs> Hold on. Uh, let me pull it up because I actually wrote it up. Okay, well, I'll say my thing first then because right. I know what you're going to say and it's different. Yeah. I think this is the on- one of the only movies, if not the only movie I can think of, where the gun is handled absolutely realistically, meaning you, the audience, literally know how many bullets are in the gun and what chamber they're in at every given point in the film because the arc is... The sheriff is the first one to pull the gun out of her purse and show it to the audience. He mm-hmm. checks how many bullets are in it, and we see that there are three. He turns it until it is loaded, meaning the next shot will fire. Yeah. Then the gun ends up being fired to kill Marty. Mm-hmm. Then Marty pulls the trigger three times, and each chamber is empty, empty yeah. which means you, the audience, now know that it the had... The next... Sorry, sorry. Uh, also, we forgot... When Ray is searching the crime scene, he kicks the gun and it fires. Oh, yeah, that's right. So you now know the sequence of bullets went bullet, bullet, empty, 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 and the last chamber must be a bullet. bullet, So now for the last act of the movie, you know, which no one else knows because the gun has changed hands several times, that there's one and only one shot left and it's the next shot. Yeah. That is that is a triumph to me to accomplish that level of knowledge of well, what's going on for me. Well, what's a, it, it all folds back into, and like obviously everyone has kind of heard the screener and intro of Chekhov's gun, right? Just the idea that in first act, if you reveal like there's a gun in a drawer, that means someone is probably going to die from this gun. It's going to be a major participant in the drama and crisis of the eventual story which is why incidentally storytellers eventually invented the red herring which is the defensible practice of throwing a bunch of random crap right. out to make sure that people don't know right what's it's a happen. football yeah. reverse you fake giving it to the running back and give it to the wide receiver yeah. kind of thing but here's what i think he this beats someone to death with the gun at the end yeah <laughs> and it's it's done in a lot of almost every film noir ever has had some form of it it doesn't always have to be a gun it's a device but here's what I think makes this movie a triumph. It's that I think it's the first verbal, which is crazy because it's right off the bat. It's like if you look at um, the Coen brothers' career, we're talking first line of any movie that they've made feature-wise mm-hmm. is about that gun. You don't see it. You just hear Abby talk about it. The very first line of the movie is Abby saying, and I bought a pearl-handled pistol just exactly. in case. So yeah. it's a verbal Chekhov's gun. So you go, okay, so this movie's about a, a particular gun. No, there are real guns in the movie that yeah. matter. That gun, though, does. And then what makes it amazing is that, and a Chekhov's gun, like, it's always the determinism of, is it, 
is it loaded or is it unloaded? Okay, it's loaded. So that means that there's six bullets. Okay, that means that anytime anyone's going to fire, that gun now is the crisis. In this movie, they it's both a Chekhov's gun and a red herring. Right, they've made every chamber matter. Every right. chamber determines an event, not just the gun one time as an object. Yeah. That's what's brilliant. And imagine... And it's, as you said, it's this nihilistic idea of, look how fucking random this shit is. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you'd spun the chamber one last time, then it would have gone bullet, 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 empty, 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 and Ray yeah. would be dead in a field. Yeah. Like, but, everything would be different. <laughs> but it happened. Uh, right. uh, and then the other thing that I wanted to mention that I love is that because this is the device that is like the form of mortality, right? This is, as as... The gun takes every life that Your gets morality taken. doesn't yeah. matter. The gun's morality doesn't matter because the gun is just a vessel. It's a tool. Well, that's not true. The sniper rifle takes Ray's life later. Oh, that's true. But each of the member uh, members of the, the four protagonists mm-hmm. at one point fire that gun. Right. Whether it's empty or full, they each fire they at each once. pull a trigger Which is with great. the intent to kill. Ray, no, Ray's is he kicks it and he, it fires. He didn't oh, yeah. have the intent to kill. Uh, yeah, that's true. His intent yeah, to kill comes the only, in the burying. It comes in the burying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He had to be warm up to the idea of exactly. murder. <laughs> well, that's what's crazy to me is burying someone alive is seems way harder than shooting them once in the head. Well, that's because it's not. Someone. It's not, his morality is not about whether or not. Uh, Marty can take it. It's about if he can take it. So right. covering and, it up and, and burying get it caught. and running away is what he wants. And it, it's right. And it's in a moment where he's not making the best decisions because he's blood simple. Yeah. Um, by the way, the blood simple term, the Dashiell Hammett novel it comes from, is the one that they adapted into Miller's Crossing. So they fucking love this novel. We should probably read it at yeah, some point. I didn't know that. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So their relationship's getting undermined. The sheriff goes back to the uh, office, Marty's office, where the safe is, and basically realizes, well, I'm fucked because someone came here and moved the body. Everything's moved around. Mm -hmm. I don't know who it is, but someone knows what the fuck happened. Uh, And it wasn't the cops because I haven't heard any chatter or whatever. He decides to literally sit there with a hammer and just try to break the safe open in case there's extra money inside, I guess, presumably, or to get the photos back. Once again, simple solution. It's probably to get the photos back because Marty had a copy of the photos that would incriminate him as having shot them, you know, the doctored photos. Right. So as he's sitting there banging away with a hammer, Francis McDormand comes because she's suspicious and wants to know what the fuck is going down and wants to talk to Marty. He hides. Once again, as Abe said, no one ever sees Lauren Vassour except for Dan Adaya. And in fact, Abby thinks that that it's it's Marty. That it's Marty. Right. Which puts it in her mind that Marty's alive. Then they both return to their new apartment. She's there. Ray's there. The sheriff calls them. I'm sorry, the sheriff. The private eye calls them. And we know that the reason he's calling is to determine, confirm that that's where they are. Because he's obviously done some off-screen detective work. Mm-hmm. So he calls. We, the audience, know it's him because we know Marty's dead. He's Got the only other that, interested yeah. character. But he just breathes and then hangs up. Which is rear window. Which, by the way, if you look at that apartment, that mm-hmm. has like the same setup of the that Hi- setup. Alfred Hitchcock movie. Nice. So that's a clear nod. Yeah. Granted it's to an open street. Like their, right. their view is obscured, but like that big window near the bed kind of thing that, yeah. Yeah. 
So Ray's like, we got to get out of town. We got to go. And I forgive you for killing. But he doesn't say it. He's like, I don't care what you've done. We just got to go. That's the important thing. Then Abby is like, no, I don't care what you've done. And he's like, don't fuck with me. I know what you did. And she says the one thing she's not supposed to say that Dan Hedaya said she would, which is, what do you mean, Ray? I ain't done nothing funny. And now Ray's clear of belief is- God, Marty was- ah. Marty was right. This was all a setup. She just wants to get the money- have me go to jail for killing her husband and then she's free and my has motivation money. for all these things is was that I really loved her on a sand and he thought built on a swamp oh yeah. she didn't love me back she's been playing she's me. been playing yeah so without confirming this they're just like both wary of each other because then he goes what after all the shit I did for you Abby he was alive when I buried him. So now she's like, oh, this dude I love is a fucking psychopath. Yeah, even though we, <laughs> once again, the dramatic irony, have seen all of his choices and be like, if I were in that situation, would I act that way? Uh, I'd hope not. I don't want to be in that situation, but at least he isn't a psychopath. Right. Because he had to think about it and turmoiled over it like a normal person in a situation that you could witness. But she doesn't witness that. She just sees the sentence of, I buried him alive. He goes, Abby, I buried him alive. And the subtext in his mind is, don't you see how much I love you? But the subtext she hears is, Bitch, I buried someone alive. I, I will kill, kill you. you. Yeah. <laughs> so they're both now scared of each other or like think each other are really bad people. And so Ray does detective work of his own, goes back to the crime scene one last time, which we visit a lot, and finds the doctored photos of him and Abby appearing to be dead. And it's unclear because he never speaks. You don't know whether this means he figured out the whole situation. That's unlikely because he would have be really smart to do that. But he knows that now he knows some weird shit is going on and there's more people involved than just Marty. Cuz yeah, cuz Marty wasn't shot dead when I right. buried him. And now here's these photos that obviously someone else made and they're of us in bed. Why is this happening? Yeah. So he knows there's still danger out there. So he goes back He's to He's just Ab- paranoid now. Against his own best wishes cuz he kind of feels weird about Abby, he goes back to the apartment just to warn her that she's not safe there anymore. While he's there, there's that phone call with the heavy breathing. Mm-hmm. She she says it's him. It must be him. And he goes, "Who?" And she goes, "Marty." Because she thinks Marty's still alive. She doesn't know of, like, she doesn't know there's a private detective even exists. Right. And when he says, I buried him alive, Abby, she's not even sure who he's referring to. Right. So she thinks that that's Marty on the phone, which he takes to mean, oh, okay, now you're just at the stage of bullshitting me to my face. Right. Because you know, we both know Marty's dead and you're saying he's alive. Yeah. All right. And he goes... All right, whoever was on the phone, obviously this whole point was to get me out of the picture and run away with him. Just take the money and run away with him. I need to be away from a window kind of thing. Right, he's like, I want you to be happy. I did love you, you know, but fine, fucking go. And she's like, what are you talking about? And he goes, look, the point is you just can't be here because there's a giant window here. And she goes, what do you mean? And he goes, there's no curtains on the window. Look, I know it's hard to trust me, but I love you, and you just got to trust me. And then he gets shot, shot through the heart. Yeah. <laughs> with, the ri- with the rifle. which then Proving that he was Abby, right, there's yeah. a sniper across the street. And then Abby grabs the knife from his pockets, right? Yep, he has a pocket knife. Yeah, and hides in the bathroom. 
And then in the same way, at rear window, we get our murderer who slowly arrives and gets in there. And now the and last, she thinks yeah. it's Marty still because she thinks Marty killed. That's Ray. the final punchline of the movie. It's right. so great. Yeah, and uh, and so the detective enters the bathroom, uh, and he's basically just. I'm going to kill you and cover up all of this mess. Right. And as we said, he's going to kill, he crushes uh, Ray's skull with something of hers to make it look like she did it. Right. Presumably he'll just hide her body and make it look like she ran away with the money. Yep. Um, I did want to point out the last 15 minutes just becomes a straight up like real time survival horror scene, which, yeah. which they don't do that often. It felt no. like a scene from panic room or something. Yep. And they do all the cl- classic maneuvers. Well, I like felt- she shows resourcefulness because she takes off her shoes and uses them to break the light bulb on the ceiling. So mm-hmm. he can't snipe her anymore, which is why he's forced to come to the building. We often see the other side of that, like mm-hmm. the manipulation of the, like the person who's acting on the crime. Like if you go back to no country for old men, we do have that sequence with uh, Sugar where he actually like, all right, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to shoot uh, the doorknob through and that's going to get me in and then I'll take him out. Like you do see, you don't see the other side of that right. coin, but you do in this film. Yes. Because you see it from is, her perspective. This is the prey being resourceful to survive, which you right. don't usually see in right. the Coens. So what happens is uh, he, he finds a uh, bathroom empty and the window open which makes him think she ran away. Uh, or so, to the next window over because yeah. it's too high to jump from, which right. is accurate. She did. She's she did. in the adjoining room. So he reaches out the window and she takes the knife. Yeah. He reaches out one window and into the adjoining window to open it. Blammo. Yeah. St- she pins him to the windowsill. And then one of my favorite performances that that guy's ever done. The punching. Punching. Just fucking through the wall. Yeah, so the way Lauren decides he has to deal with this... Oh, incidentally, I like that he searches Ray's dead body for his lighter, saying, I believe you have something yep, of mine. trying to cover up. And can't find it, because it's still under the dead fish. Yeah. Like, he even killed Ray for no reason. He yeah. could have just recovered the lighter, but he couldn't he find it. He didn't know that it was that's where he left it. Right. He, he, blood he forgot where he left yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so he is punching through the plywood wall of this shitty hotel so that he can reach his Hulk-like arm through and pull the knife out of his other hand so that he can be free again. And that buys her enough time to come out of the bathroom, around to his side, and get her gun, which we know has one and only one shot, and it's chambered now. I'm not afraid of you, Marty. And she shoots once through the door. It kills the guy instantly. Not instantly, but I mean it's fatal. And the last line, not the last line, but her last line is, I'm not afraid of you, Marty. And he starts laughing. And he starts laughing because he knows how funny this fucking movie was. And do you want to say the final line? No, you got it. Uh, Well, ma'am, if I see him, I'll sure give him the message. And and the look on her face is legitimately like, wait, who the fuck is that? (laughs) Like, she doesn't know who that was. (laughs) Yeah. The only uh, plot problem is that this realization brings that up. It's like the scab that I keep needing to pick at, which is that when he walks into the bathroom the first time, Detective says, I don't know what you two thought you were, uh, were going to pull off or something. Uh-huh. So she, either she didn't hear that, 
or she thinks that he's still Marty, even though the voice is off. It's slightly different. And then here, though, I guess maybe it's just proximity. She then realizes that's not his voice. Like, that's one weirdness that I know. That's true. You could chalk it up to the blood simple effect, by which I mean the only dream sequence we've seen is her seeing Marty tell her. She's blind. Yeah. Well, it's great because Marty, I believe, this is my interpretation, and now we're moving into pedagogy. Oh, man. <laughs> my interpretation is we see the sheriff. The sheriff is supremely confident that everything he does is going to work out throughout the movie. At the end of the movie, he dies in a way that will teach him the lesson that he shouldn't have been so confident, right? So my belief is that his opening narration is coming to us from beyond the grave. Because the opening narration seems like he understands. He says, you can be man of the year and shit can still go to hell. And he's man of the year. So I feel like he's speaking to us with the knowledge of the movie's events have happened already. And in the same way, so he speaks to us from life and death. And the only other person who does that is Marty. And he does the same thing twice. In life, he tells Ray the thing that plants doubt in his head. And after he's dead, he appears to Abby in a dream and says, you know, Ray is just a psycho. He's just going to fucking kill you and run away. He plants the seed in her head. And I love uh, just a little symbolic turn. He says, you left your weapon behind which is a clue for her to her brain to remember that her pearl handle pistol is missing but also instead of throwing her her pistol he actually throws her her makeup compact as if to say you're just shallow and you're using your feminine wiles to manipulate everyone you know that's that's, her own guilt that she could have about herself that's what i want that's to me what i think that the not hidden because I don't think that there's any agenda that's hidden in a Coen Brothers film. They're very specific. They want you to get it. They want you to get it, but they're <laughs> famous for, in interviews, being like, what's the symbolism of this mean? Like, they're on Elvis Mitchell's The Treatment or something where it's like, let's do a deep dive. We're not just going to ask you, like, how is the set? We're yeah. going to ask you, like, so you do this movement and you hang on this shot. What does that shot mean to you? And they're like, I don't know. And they're like, is that a symbolic effort? And they're like, I don't know. Is it? You know, like, they're very... Protean in their navigation and of Abe their and own I, work. Abe and I have come to the conclusion that in our opinion, the level of intentionality is so thick yeah. that it must be that they are just lying or refusing to say because They're, they want their audiences to, to figure do the it work. Out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so here's what I think that... The because mo- in interviews, they've said shit like, oh, Barton Fink, we just wrote it stream of consciousness in order. None of the stuff means anything. Yeah. And you're like, bullshit, no, dude. The mosquito matters, it you fucking shit. piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not just a fucking mosquito. It's <laughs> LA, yeah. and you know what you're doing. You uh, bloodsuckers. The background is literally a shot of the beach. You know, yeah. Anyway, we'll talk about that on the Barton Fink podcast. But um, So here's what I think. Because obviously we've talked about like kind of like the... F- what I call the surface area of symbolism, the first kind of like, oh, this is what this means, which is bloodlust, blood simple, it's in the name. You are, we we espoused it in this podcast. You you can't work if you're a psychopath and you shouldn't murder if you're a, a moral person. Here's, and I really do think another subtext of the film is literally Look at our fucking wicked ass debut and how good filmmakers right. we are. That's, it comes through in this movie yeah. that they're trying to show off. Here's to make what a I think splash. the true not I don't say true as a meaning like it's more important, but like the next level of symbolism to me is that uh, the true people uh, who are your sins are visited upon are not you. 
but are other people. In other words, the two people who committed the original crime of adultery are the ones who actually, like, Francis McDorn has to live with it, and uh, Ray has to absolutely, like, he changes. He He's now, now like, I mean, he's dead, and but from like, the if moment he were to he, live, right. he would be ne- eternally altered. Right. So they have their own sins, and they get their comeuppance, so to speak. But the two people who aren't really invested in the original sin, in other words, the private detective and Marty, uh, they are the ones who actually get, like, they're in the blast radius of this problem. So it's like your sins that you commit, yeah, there's like a justice for you, but if you commit a sin, you also have to deal with the repercussions of affecting everyone around you. And that's what I think that the bloodlust and the blood simplicity is. And it is really interesting that the quote unquote good to both commit actual murder is standing right. there and kill someone. The bad to, I mean, the private detective does cause he ends up shooting Marty, yeah. but for the first act and a half Marty, and I'm not saying this doesn't make him a worse guy cause it's, they are the yeah, bad guys, yeah, they but are. in a, just in a, what's the difference between culpability of intention and culpability of result? Yes. Marty paid a shitty hitman to try and kill them, and the hitman had no intention of ever actually He's killing them. not a good them. guy, yeah. But, like, he always intended to not really kill them. So their guilt is actually weirdly deferred. Like, exactly. Lauren Visser is such a piece of shit, he was never planning to commit murder. Mm-hmm. Does that make him less of a bad guy yeah. than this good man who buried a dude alive, though? Yeah. But we saw five times what a good guy Ray is. Does that offset that he buried someone alive? And so basically the logline of what I'm saying is sin invites sin. As yeah. the correlator, like basically what is, I think, what they're trying to say in this world is not that you get justice based off your actions. Once again, I still think that they're nihilistic filmmakers in that regard. Like, they don't have poetic justice. But... It is true that if you are a bad person and you hang, hang around bad people, bad things might happen to you. Or if you're a good person, bad things might still happen to you. And they might not. But right. the likelihood well, increases if you We live in a probabilistic universe. Yes. Exactly, yeah. Yes. And I've heard from soldiers and read you know, accounts, a lot of people around gunfire a lot more than we are blessed to be, that like someone can sweep an AK-47 across a crowd... And on some days they'll hit 20 people on some days they won't hit anyone. Like right. it's just, it's, you know, chance is chance and it always has a hand. The universe is chaos and it's right. just molecules bumping into each other or atoms bumping into each other. So, which is not to say that there are insights we can have about what's going on in the box we live in because there's yeah. going to be a ton of those, but a baseline assumption I think the Coens make that we're going to have to live with throughout this podcast is none of it matters. It's just shit bumping into each other. Right, yeah. right. It's like the, uh, their films are always the Schrodinger's cat. And um, so if you take take a look at someone like um, George R. R. Martin and the Game Ew, of Thrones. No, I don't want to. Well, don't take a look at them. Gross. Just look at the work. Okay. Uh, there seems to be an agenda uh, when he is trying to say, like, th- like, the sins are visited upon, like, the innocent. 
Like he likes to do this. Yeah, he has this chaotic kind of thing. Anyone can die at any time. It's crazy. Uh, ha, ha, ha. His signature but, is actually yeah. more but, anti-comeuppance, meaning right. if someone's really good and nice, you can guarantee gonna they're going to get fucked. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and that's the agenda that I don't think the Coen brothers really aren't held down by. They believe that God is true neutral. Yes, <laughs> yeah. that is exactly right. I mean, they don't probably believe there is a God, but that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, done podcast? <laughs> done? No. Because there's a lot more to say within the confines sure, of sure, this sure. life. No, I'm just leave. saying, like, that's, we don't need to do it. That's every one of their movies. I want to talk regard. about the fans, though, because there's this repeated fan motif, which is really the only, uh, I thought, visual strategy that they allowed to draw right. attention to. What'd you, what'd you think it meant? I can only guess a couple things because I do think either I'm not doing the work right or I'm just haven't had the realization yet or it's not as clear a symbol symbolic system as they've come up with in other films because I don't think it's that clear like I have to meet them more than halfway when I say I don't know it's about how life is crazy and spirals out of control so these people are looking at something spirally and the only reason I come to that conclusion is the final shot of the film which must matter because it's very unique and it's the final right, shot, right. is Lauren Visser as he dies, mm-hmm. is staring up at the underside of the sink in the bathroom, and he's looking at a circular fixture that basically looks exactly like a fan. It's a central thing with spokes, but it's not turning because it's just a valve. Right, I so think I that's maybe, more about spiraling out of control that shot. I thought it was I don't like, think fans are that. The fan, as long as the fan is moving, that's life. Life just goes and goes and goes. It only that's stops what, when you die. So at the moment of his death, right. he gets to see a still fan. Yeah, that's that's what you thought. That, actually, that I didn't think about that. In like, I didn't connect that the the sinkhole and the fan as symbolic same image imagery. That's what I'm saying. It's a stretch. I just yeah. was arguing that it's not about fans in this movie are not about spiraling. They're about two things. To me, one is like it's it's kind of lame, but like the winds of change. The idea that like. Uh, if we are to believe that uh, atoms are just bumping into each other, uh, there is this strange force, this centrifugal force that's pushing, aka wind, right. pushing molecules in a certain direction. So I thought it's it was more a meditation on directionality and how it's a unil- like kind of unilateral movement. Like mm-hmm. there's only one way it can go, and that's what fans kind of do. Uh, but uh, that does convince me that when I, I didn't think about the um, the fact when it stops, that's the end of a life. Like, well, the last shot's got to mean something. So, so like our wheels are just turning it. until we die, and it'll only stop when you die, friend. You yeah, know? yeah, that kind of that, thing. That's I could believe that. It's possible, I mean, we but... we and uh, people in our audience. <laughs> You tell us we overthink things too. Like this sure. is what conversations with Michael and I are usually like. We talk about this shit until it's just like, could it be that? Could it be that? And we and just like, keep going. Uh, it could be a coincidence and, they didn't intend. And, yeah. if, and if you just drop into one of our conversations, which some people have, like Adam Ganser's made fun of us for it. Like we're talking about this thing to such an extent. That Adam, you're like a child wandering into the movie. <laughs> Donnie, Donnie, Coen uh, Brothers reverence. Uh, but like, if you like, I don't know. I, I think we, we beat it to death so that we feel like we've done due diligence. Mm-hmm. So this you don't have fan to defend stuff, why we're doing the show. I'm not defending show. it. I'm just saying <laughs> that if you stop this podcast and go, these guys are full of shit. We don't necessarily believe any of these things. I'm just saying. Oh no, I believe 90% of the things we've said. The fan thing is the first thing we've said that I think yeah, okay. could be, we could be way off base Fair if we enough. could somehow read their minds. But 
to add even more complexity to it in case anyone out there has a light bulb go off and can type out their theory. Another thing to note about the fan imagery is we always see it from below, someone looking up at a fan while they're thinking, except one time. When Marty gets shot, we get the classic soul rising from the body looking down shot, and it ends by getting just above the fan Fan, level, and the fan blades cut the screen off a couple times. Just like uh, last guy to wear a Hitler stash, one of my favorite sketches we ever made. Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, Adam directed that, and he stole that shot from this. So Yeah, that's great. But, I mean, that's a classic noir shot, the fan blades going by the camera. Right, right. But my point being, it's a classic, like, I don't know, was I was like, if you're under the fan, you're alive, and when you pass the fan threshold, that's dying. But then it's complicated by the fact that, in retrospect, Marty's not even dead. In that moment, he's right. not really dead. Right. So I don't know. The fans threw me for a loop. Yeah, I think that one. Uh, I don't know. I think there's something about having a foreground fan obscuring because it doesn't obscure the entire frame. It obscures the part of the frame that he occupies. Yeah. So to me, that was just a gentle nod to like his life is ending. It's like laying a blanket over a body. So it's like a str- it's like a shutter. Uh, that is slowly slowing down and stuttering out of existence. That's my only take on that. And of course, as we said, I'm sure some of their decisions are. We thought it looked and felt right, and we did it. You don't have to. It doesn't have to tie into a thing. No, it doesn't. (laughs) They're just like, that's a cool shot. Also, I don't know. When they have three prolonged fan shots in one movie, I tend to believe it's something. It meant something to them. It means, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chekhov's fan. It's Chekhov's You fan. met Chekhov's biggest fan? She's, yeah. she's real creepy. She's real creepy. <laughs> she just goes off at any time. Yeah. In case you want to read ahead, I just see in my notes that Dashiell Hammett book is called Red Harvest. And uh, Miller's Crossing's episode three. So we'll be talking about Miller's Crossing, which is a loose adaptation of Red Harvest by Dashiell Hammett. Which is kind of interesting because this, the working title of... Um, Star Wars Star- Blue, Blue Harvest. Harvest. Don't, what's Together mm. they are Purple Harvest. Purple Harvest. A noir Star Wars movie. That's going to be our first working title. Where they have to get the Maltese Millennium Falcon. <laughs> it's perfect. Uh, we're nerds. We're nerds. <laughs> uh, I am scrolling through my notes as far as diegesis and pedagogy are concerned just to make sure I have nothing else. But then we could probably move on to how to do that. I do like how same old song is... The third use of same old song is credits. Yeah. Uh, which I think, again, just hammers home. That's like, this is the anthem of this movie. Mm-hmm. And we only had to pay for rights to one song for our right, indie movie. Right. Which is kind of weird that they had like the blooper reel during that, during the credits. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen Life with Martin Lawrence and Eddie Murphy? Bernie Mac? No. It's fucking really good, dude. It's underrated. People have forgotten about it, but it's great. I just watched it again. Eddie Murphy is... Next level star oh, yeah. talent. Oh, yeah. It's so sad that he only makes bad movies now because he's so good. Well, I don't think he's, I mean, I don't know if he's going to return. He only made those like the last eight years of his career. Right. He life made is, solid movies. Life is earlier and it's really good. I recommend watching it. And it has the funniest blooper reel I've ever seen in any movie. In Funnier the than credits, e- uh, Will Ferrell and Eastbound and Down? Yes. Wow. I would say because. Now I got to watch the it. The whole blooper reel, Eddie Murphy is just bringing the laughs and fucking ad-libbing and ruining everyone. Like, no uh, one can stand up to how good his ad-libs I are. I love it. Uh, yeah, so let's go back to Coen Brothers movies. But yeah, sure. Yeah. I think that's everything. I uh, in, in future, especially in the next episode, which will be Raising Arizona, I want to do, like, quote roundups also. 
This one, yeah. this is a light dialogue movie, so I don't have that many. No. Uh, but Raising Arizona is like, we have to have a section where we just say, remember this, yeah. remember this. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, So yeah, fucking yeah, yeah, yeah. good. Um, but I did want to talk about a couple quotes. Like you, were, you alluded to earlier, let's break down that opening narration. Now, opening narration is something I have a knee-jerk reaction against in right, most films. Right. And the Coens fucking love it. Yeah, well, it's because they don't use it for exposition necessarily. They want they like weave their exposition with like here because they do it in No Country as well with Tommy and Lee Jones, uh, yeah, uh, Hudsucker. They love to open with basically a tone poem that is a montage because they are the kings of the montage. Yeah, and and a tone poem that basically establishes the feel of the universe <laughs> right i think that it's it's like to peek inside uh, a perspective so it's to see not here's a world and here's how we want you to think about it so a voiceover is super efficient at doing that because you get visuals of what the world looks like and you get the tone from the way in which they're interpreting the world yeah um that's all. So what do you? What did you get from that monologue? It's again, the world's full of complainers, but the fact is there's no guarantees. <laughs> mm. I don't care if you're president or man of the year. Stuff can go wrong. You know, in Russia, they got it all worked out so everyone pulls for each other. But that's the theory anyway. I don't know about Russia. I know about Texas. And mm-hmm. then it's cut to action. To me, the text is that she is talking about the movie and the fact that like we've alluded to a bunch of times how there's uh, sin invites sin kind of stuff. But I think that the subtext is that she does like, I love the line about like, I don't know about Russia. I know about Texas. Yeah. Uh, Because it's, she, it's about what you don't know and what you aren't in control of. Uh, And the fact that she survives is because she's aware of that versus like, uh, you know, a figure like Lauren who assumes that he would know about this. Like maybe he doesn't know about Russia, but he knows about like, this is how you do crime. Yeah. He dies. She survives because she is, has that liquidity, that uh, ability to be malleable. Yeah. Uh, she can change and she like, in fact, she's one of the only, I mean, obviously uh, Ray and Abby both kind of go through a change, especially in that uh, bedroom scene, but she's the one who actually survives, I think, because she, while her motivation stays the same, she is open to new things occurring all the time. Mm. Like she's like, I think it's him when on the phone call, even though she's been told that it's not, you know, there's like this flexibility that she has that I think allows her a little bit of, uh, right. Cause she says to Maurice, I think Ray killed Marty. Then she gets a phone call and says, says I my, think it's Marty. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So she's still open to maybe I could be wrong. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Exactly. And versus everyone else who's like, a snap judgment of this is what's going You're on right. and this is who she's it is. the only adaptable one that could yeah. be why she survives and uh, I think Russia and socialism is just a nod to the idea of whether you're an individual whether you go it alone and are selfish or you're ultimately altruistic the results can be the same because the world is chaos and the question of do people naturally want to help other people or not help other people yeah that's true and I think it's echoed when he says later I can't believe we have it took us so long to say this by the way but the the private detective part was written for M. M. at Walsh, and he's so fucking good. Can oh, we yeah. just say like how good the character is? Uh, yeah. Because he's the villain that you hate all the more because he fears nothing. He thinks everything you take seriously is funny. He doesn't give a fuck, 
and he laughs like a hyena at everything. Yeah. It's so good. One of my favorite scenes that makes you like loathe him and fear him is... In the car? No, when Marty's trying to threaten him, he says, you know, in Greece, he says, like, you're treating this really lightly that my wife is cheating on me. It's pissing me off. You know, in Greece, they'd behead the messenger who brought the bad news. Right. And he goes, that don't make much sense. And he goes, oh, no? I think it made him feel better. And he goes, well... Glad I don't live in Greece. Yeah. Like, give me my money. Yeah, like, doesn't change what this is. <laughs> right. And uh, at the end, when he's leaving, he goes, uh, if you need me, you know what rock I'll be, like, scuttling out from under. Call yeah. me if you ever want to chop my head off. I can always crawl around without it. And then just laughs and laughs as he walks away. Right, which is so... Well. Yeah, his laughter is so grating and, and terrifying. It's like and great. a jackal's laugh. But yeah. similarly, when he's being hired to do the crime... I think it's definitely a callback to the opening monologue when the private detective says, the guy says, uh, Julian, Marty, says, $10,000 if you kill him. Well, first of all, this is just a good turn of phrase. He goes, uh, I have a job for you. And the private eye says, well, if it's legal and the money's right, I'll do it. Well, it's not strictly legal. Well, if the money's, money's right, right, I'll yeah, do yeah. it. And he goes, That just increases the money, but <laughs> right. I'll still do it. Yeah. And he says, I want you to kill these two people. And he goes, how much? And he says, $10,000. And his response is nice. to become like really reverent and stare into space and go, you know, in Russia, they only make 50 cents a day. So I think that's the other chamber of that observation is like, whether, whether the movie believes it or not, or whether the Coens believe it or not, the private detective certainly believes that you can live in a world where people help each other and everyone's poor, mm. or there can be winners and losers, or you can't have it both ways. And I like, think he'd rather live in a world of predators and prey I than th- live in a world where everyone's poor and pulls for each I other. I think that's the nihilistic uh, hint there, is that the Coen brothers believe, and as we kind of all understand, we do live in a world where it's both. Mm-hmm. Like they're just showing us the the awful remainder of the realization that reality is imperfect. It's not that it should be one way or another. It's just literally it's being a mirror. It's reflect what life is and be still, you know, yeah. like that's what they're doing. Cool. No? Should we go on to how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you do that? Fun facts, trivia, and behind the scenes information. Uh, what do you got? Uh, well, I, just because we were talking about M.M. Uh, Walsh, I, uh, there's one thing I read that I didn't know, but I think is amazing. Which, So Joel is the guy who directs most of the stuff. Ethan is the producer. They obviously are you know, two-headed Hydra, uh, so they can do what they fucking... They, they both direct and produce, yeah. but they just decided that that's kind of how it works. Multiple actors have told the great on-set story where... They'll do a take and they'll try something with it. Maybe that was different than rehearsal, maybe. Yeah, oh, brother. And Joel will look at Ethan or Ethan will look at Joel and they'll just go, Ethan, and the other one will go, I know. And then they'll both come together and like in unison essentially just be like, remember what we did in rehearsal? It was this, this, and this. Do that. Uh, As George (laughs) Clooney said. uh, They don't collaborate. Direction from the Coen brothers isn't like going for a thing. It's just... They're polite. You're politely asked to do it as it was done in rehearsal because they believe. I think they fervently believe that casting is ninety nine point nine percent of the job, uh, right? For at least the roles. Uh, and know. and their bit, I th- they strike me as pretty friendly compared to your like. So like Kubrick is equally visionary, right. but he's a fucking lunatic asshole. Yeah, and that tends to happen. They Even Hitchcock's kind. a fucking yeah. lunatic. They seem like 
kind auteurs, which is such a weird combo. Like kind dictators, because their only rule is do it exactly like I said. Yeah. I'm not going to flip out like David O. Russell. We're not going to fire you like other directors I could name, but just do it exactly like we said. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it comes down to their meticulously planned, even more so than I think we give most directors credit. I think all great directors are meticulously planned. Nolan, Tarantino, Hitchcock. All but I would say guys. 99% but of those. they're so planned. Uh, yeah, 99% of those directors except that a part of the collaboration is the acting piece is organic and the actor can bring choices nope. that could change it and take it to a new place. That works for many, many, many films. That's uh, not how the Coens roll. They just don't I think, do that. I think they're at their best <laughs> when they don't do it. So uh, I'm glad you told that anecdote because here it's funny that in their freshman kind of uh, jump into movie making, uh, they had some clash with M. Emmett Walsh. So Joel Cohen had trouble convincing him to pick up his hat off the ground in the ending scene. Uh, and Walsh had a laundry list of reasons why that, like, I, my character wouldn't do that. In this the heat is, of this moment, why this would is, I Why would I care? Hat? And uh, the Cohen brothers tried and tried and tried to debate it on that merit, which is kind of what you do when you direct, is that if you really want something as a director and you have an actor who really wants something as a, you know, a, a role player, uh, you kind of do a tete-a-tete, like, here's the logical reasons. And, that's and the philosophy behind that is the belief that the actor is kind of, it's going to feel forced most likely yeah. unless they can wrap their head around why they're doing You're trying that. to convince someone. I mean, you're trying to convince them that they're the worldview that you want the character to have is valid and they need to be convinced. It hurts their acting often if they, right. if they don't understand or and, believe it. And that's the nature of craft is that, uh, it, it's almost always best if it's unified vision. And so there's obviously in every movie, there's kind of a clash and there's a derisive nature of uh, who gets creative control. And director, that's why we have, you know, director's God kind of theories is because it's just like a lot of actors get a lot of continuous work if they have the belief structure where it's like, no, I'm whatever you want, man. A lot of the right. actors I work with, they're just like, I'm not like ending world hunger here. I'm just here to play a role and get paid and do my craft really well. Right, but I so you yeah. use me as a vessel essentially. But I still story. say almost every director that I've ever worked with would say, "Okay, we got three takes of this line. Why don't you give me three different, equally valid That's, things you might do?" Yep. And in editing, I'll see what I like. The Coens Which, go, "No, you're a goddamn meat puppet." In rehearsal, we tried three things, and we told you it's there number two. Yeah. Now give us three takes of number two. So, exactly that. <laughs> uh, so Walsh, they it got to the point where it got like not out of hand. They were just like, we have reached an impasse. And this is the only time I've ever heard uh, the Cohen brothers ever say this, which uh, the Coens asked Do Walsh. Do it because we said so. <laughs> Will you just please humor me? Ah, uh, to which Walsh replied, I'm humoring you by doing the whole fucking movie. Whoa. <laughs> and I just love that analogy of it's like, okay, so that. Was he bigger than them at this time? Is oh, he yeah. a big star? Oh, yeah. Okay, I love him. I didn't know he ever had a huge career, This is really. their freshman. Right, they're nobodies. 1.5 million. Yeah. You know, like, what the, your fucking movie. And it's funny because Francis McDormand, of course, just won an Oscar. But at the time. 
She's M. roommates M. with Holly Hunter. Right, and M. Emmett Walsh is the only person in the movie that is a name. In fact, they wrote that role for him and courted him for it. Yeah. So he is like the Bruce Willis on the Die Hard yeah, of this like, set, where he's yeah, like, are you hey, f- I'm the whole movie, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> are, are you going to get a different John McClane? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and by the way... Uh, Holly Hunter was uh, doing because they both I think went to Tisch or NYU. They were roommates, and Holly Hunter turned down the role of Abby. because she was in a play at the time yeah. and said this is Francis McDormand's first role, and they actually thought they were gonna do like Holly Hunter was gonna be the person. Yeah, uh, which Abby. is just crazy about how like talk about like the cosmos and its chaos and like atoms bumping into each other. Francis McDormand is married. <laughs> right. To Joel or Ethan? I don't even know. Right. Joel, I think. They're interchangeable. <laughs> they're interchangeable to me. <laughs> well, I don't care. Like you and me. They're just the unibrain. Uh, you don't yeah. need to know about our specific. Francis McDormand wed one of them, uh, making them the luckiest man in the world, whichever one yeah. it is. But like the point is, it's just like, were it not for this film, I wonder if it would have been... like. The, because then she was in Raising Arizona, then she... You and know, Fargo, so is... Right, you know. but so is Holly Hunter as the lead in Raising right, Arizona. Right, so they obviously were like in love with Holly Hunter, and which I understand... We, well, we see about the Coens throughout their career, they're big on building the team, and they're very loyal, which is something I love because if you follow... Actually, Coogler is very loyal to his cast yeah. team, his extended family. But I don't... I see a lot of directors who are like, spin the wheel, new movie, all new people, and... You know, we have actors that we are bonded to that we love. Like, yeah. I never want to not consider Dylan Seaton for roles and shit. Yeah. So, like, if we ever get to the point where we're regularly making features, I also like that Cohen vibe where you're like, oh, they all oh, came up with each other at UCSD. Yeah, that's that, crazy. That guy's in four of their movies. But that it's lady's just in five of their movies. We know each yeah. other's speeds. We like what we know how to use each other and like in the nicest way. I don't right. mean like use them, but I mean like we know what our strengths are and we want to play to yeah. it. And so we're going to write stories that play to their strengths. You yeah. know, like I always cast Nathan Turner as like the same guy. And I've talked to him about it all the time. It's like, we're very fast. We like to edit like a Looney Tunes and you, and you refuse to not take slow. time to act. <laughs> so anytime I need a guy to slow us down, I'm like, so, so funny for contrast. So Nathan, yeah. Uh, so yeah, speaking of, I mean, there's a lot of firsts cause it's their first movie, but just knowing the future, what a fucking wonder team, as you were just saying. It's Francis McDormand's feature debut. It's Carter Burwell's first score with them. And Barry Sonnenfeld is their goddamn Do you know that Carter Burwell lives, like, here? Let's go. Let's uh, interview he, him. Like, he, he, he records right at uh, right next to, like, on Santa Monica and don't, on Cross Street, which don't mention. That's what I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> but, like, he, like, I've seen it. It's crazy. Nice. Well, we should try and get him to be interviewed for this podcast and score it and be best friends <laughs> right. with us. Right. Uh, other little fun facts. While Ray is driving with Marty in the backseat, the DJs on the radio say they're, like, I'm John Livesey, and, the next, and coming up in an hour, it's Mike Miller with another music blog. Right, right. Those are the two sound editors. Right. That's right, their right, names. Right. They love to do shit like that. I found out, I had no idea, it was remade in 2009 as a, by a Chinese director, and they made it as a woman, a gun, and a noodle shop, and I want to see that now. That could be cool. Oh, really? Yeah. All right, let's watch it. Adaptation. And then he- Holly Hunter actually is in this movie. She is the comedy comedic break. She's the voice on Maurice's answering machine that says... 
my friend said you were full of shit when you said you're going to Europe. You're just fucking me and leaving me. Like, call me back, motherfucker. You know, and oh, then the wow. next message is Dan Hedaya saying, I'm blaming you for the 10,000. Right, story. In it, so that's story. Holly Hunter. So, wow. Francis and Holly, both in the movie and both in the following movie. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about like the, the finished film and how it like, mm-hmm. because remember, the, the main thing about the freshman uh, feature is distribution. Cause you, 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 you have all the time in the world. That's why they say like sophomore albums are always like tough. Kill me now. Still freely available on <laughs> youtube.com. Because uh, as you, uh, because you have all the time in the world before you're, you know, the spotlights on you to create whatever you want. So this is something that they could have taken as much time as they wanted. But with. these guys don't have that problem. Yeah, and you they know don't it. have that problem. Raising they don't have Arizona is better than every, Blood Simple. <laughs> but everyone knows that that is a thing with artists. Especially and in music. Yeah. So that they, they were playing with that assumption. So the finished film was brought to LA and shown to major studios. like, And they all passed. Uh, later that year, it was accepted into the 1984... New York Film Festival, which they already had cred with because they, you know, like went there. Uh, and then it was shown at the Toronto Film Festival and it fucking cleaned the house. That's how they got their distribution is they went through the festival route and just killed it. And then everyone was like, so it just tells you how fickle kind of like these guys understood. Like anytime you think like, oh man, I need to despair because the people have the keys to the kingdom uh, are fucking pieces of shit and they aren't going to see my worth. Uh, will you find the people who will see your worth and then those people who you thought were fickle will come to your door because they'll understand what you're good at. That's, I just thought that was a cool start of their career. I think it's cool that in the initial trailer you mentioned that they originally used to sell, raise funds for the movie, it featured the Bruce Campbell burying alive scene and Bruce Campbell played Marty. So there's an identical shots from that sequence of Bruce That's Campbell right. all bloodied That's crawling right. down the freeway. That's so fucking good. Yeah. In the, especially in the early movies, there's a lot of Sam Raimi connections. They're good, good friends. Yeah. And that'll be fun going forward. Sam Raimi's actually in many, like in, in like three or four of their films. Is yeah. like Just a guy. I love Sam Raimi. He didn't hold up over the long haul as well as the Cohen's, but think he's innovative. He's innovative. <laughs> I mean, he's... Um, he's good, man. I mean, he as a filmmaker, he's up there, and people don't give him a lot of credit. He invented, like, styles of camera. I was going to say, his inventiveness is why he's up there, and, I, and he's made several of my favorite, favorite movies, Quick and the Dead. As yeah. we said, A Simple Plan yeah. is phenomenal. But he's got a lot of misses lately. I don't yeah, know, man. Yeah, I mean, once he started doing uh, the uh, the Spider Mans, Marvel the, ruins most directors. I love when it's. I mean, that's why in. they back away. I mean, Edgar Wright is like, nah. You, I can tell what this situation I'm is. So glad I'm he made that bounced. decision. Joss Whedon's like, I can't keep doing this. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, that's yeah. probably smart. I mean, that's why they're going after people like Coog, who are like kind of jump starting their career. Yeah, and they're still in like they're already on. You know, they're already in the zeitgeist, but they haven't like. You still believe there's a masterpiece left in them? Yeah, but I hope and believe that Coogler will have the foresight to be like, I'm, I'm doing three Black Panthers, franchise wrapped, and I'm out. And then I'll do something not Marvel at all. Like, if you're I listening see more to this, Ryan, movie. get out, man. Get out. You got to get out. Oh, I, Keep making Fruitvale, man. No, Creed. I loved Creed. Creed was good. Really good. Creed's my favorite. Well, Black Panther's probably my 
most. All, all right. right. That's a different podcast, too. That's a different too. podcast. The Coogler's doing great. Uh, all right. I think that's this episode. Yeah, you I want to move on. We're going to do Raising cool. Arizona next because that's number two. And that was uh, three years later? Ni- uh, uh, it was 1987. Bah, bah. What did I say? Blood this is 84. 84. So join us in three years <laughs> for Raising Arizona. This has been the Cohen Brothers Brothers. We're just two mining brothers. Two mining brothers. Mining the Cohen. <laughs> This has been a small beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!